Hi, and welcome to Decoding AQ, helping you to learn the tools, mindsets, and actions to thrive in an ever-changing world. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Decoding AQ. I've been looking forward to today. We've got a Hall of Famer with us. We have Todd Churches. Now, Todd is the CEO and co-founder of Big Blue Gumball, a New York City-based management consultancy firm specializing in leadership development and executive coaching. In fact, like many of our guests that we've had over, over the time, he's a member of Marshall Goldsmith's MG100, but he's also a three-time award-winning adjunct professor of leadership at NYU and also a lecturer on leadership at Columbia University, TEDx speaker, and an author of a groundbreaking book called Visual Leadership, Leveraging the Power of Visual Thinking in Leadership and Life. So welcome, Todd. Ross, thanks for having me. This is great. I look forward to this conversation after watching so many of your prior shows. I'm honored to be a guest. Awesome. So as a kid who loved TV and who wanted to work in the TV industry, you know, who dreamed of being Superman or maybe uh, even Batman, how did you end up becoming one of the top thought leaders in the world in sort of management and design thinking? How did it start? Where did it come from, Todd? Well, I could show you know, in terms of visual thinking, I could walk you through all 30 years of my visual bio, but I'm not going to do that uh, today. Um, but, uh, but basically, growing up as a kid, what who was obsessed with television and reading, both of them, and comic books and all visual medium. So it's kind of like what I do today. I could always trace the roots back to the early days. So um, in terms of, I was just asked recently, what are your superpowers? And I said, well, I, like Superman, I don't have x-ray vision, but I have the power of visual thinking. And like Batman, I don't have the utility belt, but I have a tool belt of visual thinking tools, tips, and techniques. So in some ways I have, and I try to save the world and make the world a better place, one leader at a time, which is my mission statement. Uh, and I try to do that through the power of visual leadership. So in some ways I figured out a way to kind of like make that childhood vision come through, although I don't wear a, a, a costume or a cape, uh, except in private, but I'm not even gonna go into that. Um, so yeah, so long story short, I have a background, my degree is in English literature with a concentration in Shakespeare and poetry. So I like to weave the arts and literature as a thread in everything that I do. Um, I worked in advertising for Ogilvy and Mather, my first job out of college. Then I realized if I really wanted to work in TV, most of those jobs were in Hollywood. So I needed to pack up, after years growing up in New York, I, I moved to LA and I had a number of amazing jobs. Um, one of my temporary night jobs just to pay the rent, which I don't often talk about, I was a bouncer in a nightclub uh, at night. So I'd be working at the TV studios during the day. And I actually wrote a pilot script called Bouncer by Night who, about this guy who led this double life of being a bouncer at night and then working during the day. I couldn't get, sell it or get it published, but um, you know, that's that. So, that was part of my early career, but I worked for um, uh, Disney. I worked for um, for uh, CBS. I worked for a number of TV um, studios and networks. And then I was a project manager in the theme park business for a number of years. Um, so the, the recurring theme that came across throughout all those early jobs was toxic cultures and horrible bosses. So my book is dedicated first to my wife, secondly to my parents, and thirdly to all the horrible bosses without whom my career would never have been possible. So um, when I moved back to New York after 10 years in LA, I ended up with a job for a management training company and that's where I got hooked. I realized, hey, management and leadership is an art and a science. It's something you can learn and develop and get better at. 
So I started getting addicted to all these management leadership books, starting with like the Peter Drucker stuff. And, um, and that's what I do today. So I kind of fell into it as a result of having all those bad bosses. So I'll, I'll stop right there. And so my visual leadership approach combines my storytelling and entertainment background, but applies a lot of those concepts and techniques to the practice of management leadership and coaching. And it's often these opportunities of convergence, isn't it? Where we take things from one experience and apply it in a new way or in new industry or a new world that we can create innovation. You know, a lot of, you know, the innovation comes from the naive mind. So that opportunity to come in in that way is, is quite fascinating. And I, I think if I'm right, you know, some of that inspiration about visual leadership and what you're thinking around there came about from a trip to China uh, and some of the challenges it was around when you were working in the theme park and just walk me through a little bit of you know that story and maybe then how that impacted in what really is visual leadership. Sure uh, well one thing you just reminded me of there's a quote by the Greek philosopher Heraclitus who said that a wonderful harmony arises when we join together the seemingly unconnected. So just what you were talking about, when you take things like how Reese's peanut butter cup, right? Take the chocolate and the peanut butter, right? So I take my background in, in, in the entertainment industry and leadership, a literature, apply it to leadership, and it's a whole new way of looking at, at leadership. So, so definitely right. Um, yeah, a long story short, I tell the, story, the short version of my TED talk. Um, is I had never been in the United States before. I had taken a job as a project coordinator as a theme park production company, and the project manager was moved on to something else. And they're like, all right, you're the project manager now. And oh, by the way, you have to go to China to oversee the installation. Now, I didn't even know where Shenzhen was. It's just over the border from Hong Kong. So I get there and I realize that it's myself and my engineer and my mechanical guy. We had to install these life-size robotic animal figures that went in this cultural theme park. No one there spoke any English at all. They gave us a translator who spoke no English. So it's kind of like, what do you do? How do we get this done? And it turned out I started doing a lot of drawing. And even though I really have ICD, which is I can't draw syndrome, I couldn't really draw, but I started sketching things out. So it was almost like Pictionary and charades. It was a lot of sketching and pointing. And somehow we figured out, this is actually a copy of one of my original, those who are watching this on video, my original napkin sketch. You know, so if we needed a hammer or a screwdriver, and that's not too bad, right? For someone who can't draw that well, it's enough to say, hey, we need one of these. And we got it done. So that was uh, when I got back and I reflected, I'm like, well, you know, so, so often I made my master's degree is in communication, but so often we focus on the words. We don't focus on the nonverbals and the impact of visuals and things like that. So the light bulb went off. And it wasn't until years later that I really started to say, hey, this is a thing, this visual communication, visual thinking thing. But that was like an aha moment. So if I, if I have to trace it back to an origin moment, um, that would be it. And the example of being able to be aware of context, new situation, new environment, and adapting to meet an objective, that's what life's all about, isn't it? You know, it's about understanding the situation and context and then manifesting the way in which we um, consider communication, the way in which we react or even respond to certain things in order to do teamwork, to collaborate, to solve problems. And as you mentioned, you know, to make the world better, maybe one leader at a time. But the the reality of those things when we have maybe challenging experiences or even awful ones, bad bosses that inspire us to maybe uh, re-engineer a better way uh, forward. Yeah. 
what were some of the things that, you know, wanting to work in TV, had these experiences that went into visual leadership, management consultancy firm to then ah, leadership and coaching? What really is it about coaching or about leadership that ignites you? Well, one is uh, I, I, having had so many bad bosses and bad teachers, I try to be the type of manager and leader I wish I had. I try to be the kind of professor that I wish I had. I only had like two or three. When I think back, uh, that's the Paul Simon lyric. When I think back at all the crap I learned in high school, it's a wonder I can even think at all from his song Kodachrome. When you think back, how many amazing teachers come to mind, right? Who are the ones who really stick with you all these years later? And I, I, found, I figured out that the differentiator was they cared about me as a person, as a student, as a kid. as a So this, it wasn't about their teaching skills or their subject matter knowledge so much as they took an interest in me as a person. So whether you're a teacher, whether you're a boss, if you care, I always talk about caring as a competitive advantage, right? The teachers who care, what's that, that, there's that saying, people don't know how, care how much you know until they know how much you care. Caring is a way of really connecting, building relationships, showing interest in a person. It's empathy. It's compassion. Uh, ties into diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. If you make someone feel that their opinion matters, I always talk about three V's: visibility, voice, and value. Are you? Do you feel seen? Do you feel heard? And do you feel recognized for your contribution? So these all kind of tie together. So I try to. My book is written like the type of book I like to read, and I try to be the type of professor and the type of coach that I wish I had at various points in my career. The ability to, for all of us to have an experience and then consider what do we want to throw away or what do we want to repeat or what do we want to evolve and, and change is an interesting one because then as leaders, we have a wake, you know, of uh, the ripple effects behind us in what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And often we can theorize or talk about or write about care and about taking interest and I felt for me personally the best ones have not only shown that interest or care but they've done it when it's perhaps inconvenient mm. and I think that differentiator of when when it's rough seas when the chips are you know up against it when you're really in a situation of high stress of of um maybe what we're experiencing right now you know, uncertainty. Can you show care when it's inconvenient? And I think that is perhaps polarizing maybe some of the situations we're seeing now in the workplace of where when we need it most, maybe it's not there, the interest, because we're under pressure, we're under stress, and our gaze narrows into survival mode rather than the other. Is that something you're seeing? And how are you, if you are seeing it, how are you helping people to maybe overcome some of those things to ensure that care happens in inconvenient times? Yeah, it's a great point. When, you know, when under stress, it's very common for our worst traits to come up or to get very selfish or self-interested and forget about other people. Um, one of the things I often talk about, we live in, you know, we, we all know the uh, acronym VUCA. We're living in a, what I call a hyper VUCA world because we're more VUCA than ever. And for those who may not know, uh, VUCA is a world that's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. I wrote a blog post called, um, in a VUCA world, leaders need to do the opposite. So in a world that's volatile, leaders need to slow things down and calm things down, which is hard for me because I'm from New York and I talk loud and fast, as you could tell. I am an extreme introvert. 
Um, and I always talk about myself as a three B's guy, a back of the room, behind the scenes bookworm by nature. But I talk loud and fast. People always think I'm an extreme extrovert, but I am not. So when things are volatile, we need to slow things down and calm things down, right? Take that urgency and panic and try to make things more manageable. In a world that's uncertain, there's always going to be uncertainty, but just separating what we can be certain about from what the unknowns are and trying to wrap our heads around that. In a world that's complex, and it's always been complex, but it's just more than ever because we're more global, things are moving faster than ever in technology and everything else. Can we simplify things? You know, we always talk about thinking outside the box as being a cliche, but you can't think outside the box until you have a box and something in it. So if you can create some kind of framework, process, or structure to help you simplify that complexity so you can see things more clearly, it makes them more manageable. And then you can figure out solutions and approaches that maybe you hadn't seen before because you were so overwhelmed. And lastly, ambiguous, you know, we're living in a world, you know, there's that fog of uncertainty. If you could clarify certain things, if we can say, you know, how can we use the metaphor earlier about navigating through the storm or whatever? Um, if we could find our way and see, you know, big part of leadership is vision, right? Um, and my book is called Visual Thinking because it's about seeing things through a lens based on our backgrounds, but it's also about this, seeing the future. Um, and creating a vision of the future that's different from and better than the current reality, can we find some clarity so we can at least know which, if we're going in the right direction and see over the horizon? So that's my kind of summation on um, how I talk about VUCA and uh, how we can, as leaders, wrap our heads around it around. Uh, to make it more manageable. It resonates well with um, a concept that my coach, Dan Sullivan, talks about of people are in two areas. They're a simplifier or a multiplier. When they get together, then that is poetry, but yeah. a simplifier comes first. You can't multiply until you've first simplified. Yeah. And neither really is very successful without each other. Yeah. And so that paradox of, you know, simplicity to in order to multiply yeah. is quite a fun one to, to think about. But the realities of leaders being able to have that duality, that ambidextrous uh, viewpoints to be able to uh, trim and simplify and expand and grow at the same time and we're often pulled in these multitude of directions we have all these questions that we're trying to answer or figure out what the right questions are in the first place where where are you seeing the opportunities with maybe some of the clients and things that you're working with at the moment to deal with perhaps some of the challenges around these complex things called people um, and when, as we've said, you know, many are feeling stressed, we might be feeling disconnected, we might have a toxic boss, all of these things have always been the same, but now it just seems very different. It seems like the playing field has shifted and a lot of these playbooks are maybe not fit for purpose anymore. So what are perhaps some of the ways that you've seen organizations start to shift that, uh, that yes, applying visuals or uh, envisaging future, gaining clarity, all of those things. But what are some of the maybe stories that you've seen of that in reality happen well? Yeah, I mean, the biggest issue of our time right now in the post-pandemic world is, uh, and the focus of most of my work, is how do you manage and lead in a hybrid, in a hybrid work, work, workforce, workforce and working world where some managers are saying, all right, everyone back to the office after Labor Day, after, you know, starting when the summer's over, everyone back to the office and they're going to find like three people there, right? So it's kind of like 
how does an organization meet its needs by also meeting and satisfying the needs of its people? Um, how do you build, how do you onboard people? How do you uh, build culture? How do you create collaboration in a world that's so scattered and fragmented and complex and people are all over the place? There's some managers who want to turn the calendar back to 2019 and let's say, let's pretend this whole thing never happened. But to use a few metaphors, the cat's out of the bag, the genie's out of the bottle, and the train's left the station, right? You can come up with whatever toothpaste is out of the tube, whatever you want to call it. We're not going backwards, right? So the most effective managers and leaders will be those who can figure out a way to, and I know one of your areas of focus is adaptability. How do we adapt to the new realities and be flexible and agile enough to find a way that works for everyone, both organizations and employees? alike. So that's, I think, the biggest management leadership challenge of our time is in this changing world, no one has any answers because everything has changed. So, and there's no one size fits all solution because it really, you know, we all, I always say the two word answer to any question is it depends, right? You get paid the big bucks if you can figure out what it depends on, but the answer to any question is it depends. It depends on your industry, your function, the culture, your location, like all of these various uh, variables factor into what's the best way for you at this particular time to deal with your current situation. So I think that, um, you know, again, using some of these visual thinking techniques I always talk about will help us to communicate. My mantra is how do you get people to see what you're saying, right? So it's like, how do we also see what other people are saying as well? So I'll stop there. But those are a few of the key concepts is the world has changed drastically in just the last couple of years. It has. And I think this vulnerability and humanity that leaders have once been the source of show me the vision show me the way and have clarity over that have you know a sense of commitment have a sense of knowing whereas now many don't know you know i don't know what the vision's going to be i don't know where we need to go mm. i don't know even how so when you mentioned about the box having something in there some are even just figuring out what that new vision even is. So before it was a very different reality of maybe just expanding what existed before. Yeah. And the vision of doing that was relatively um, thinkable. Whereas now we're requiring a new level of thought, a new level of imagination, a new level of, uh, of unknowing being okay, of maybe... Um, as a leader, you know, not having those answers and being comfortable with that. Yeah. What are your thoughts around that uh, situation? Because I, many leaders I've spoken to have often privately felt that, but felt uncomfortable about expressing the level of doubt, of unknowing or whatever in front of others because of this perception of what is expected of them. Is yeah. that something you've seen? Yeah, I mean, Socrates said, you know, all I know is I know nothing, right? So it's like even one of those most brilliant thinkers of all time confessed. So if you're a leader and you pretend or think you have all the answers, you don't. Um, that's why leadership at every level from the bottom up is just as important as the top down. Um, my mission statement for my company is uh, making the world a better place one leader at a time and everyone is a leader in one way or another, right? So just changing the conception of what leadership is, um, you know, there's a lot of people who have lofty titles who are terrible leaders and people who have no titles who are amazing leaders. So it's about influencing, creating followership. Um, thought leadership involves both the thought and the leadership. You have, could have amazing ideas, but if you can't influence people and get them out into the world, 
then they're just only in your head, right? The old career path, and career path as a metaphor always implied like there were these stepping stones neatly laid out and you just stroll through the park. I say my career was a career roller coaster, ups and downs, twists and turns, exhilarating highs, terrifying plummets. My students love hearing about the times I was fired. One of my classic stories is the boss who threw a box of pens at my head because they were not the ones she wanted. So just, um, and the old career path used to be for like baby boomers, Gen Xers, which I am on the cusp of, uh, you start out in the mailroom, right? And you aspire to the corner office. Well, there's no mailroom anymore because there's no mail. There's only email. And I don't think there's a room for that. And the corner office, does anyone even care about that anymore? Would you, I'd rather have a corner office in my own apartment, right? In my own home or, or get a corner table at Starbucks to do my work when I, I talk about four N's. We live in a world where anyone at any time can do anything from anywhere, right? So in the world of the four N's, physical geography, like everything's changed. Like all the old rules don't apply. So I think in a way it's a challenge and it's confusing and overwhelming. On the other hand, it's an opportunity to reinvent what work should look like and be like and what you want your place in it to be. And I guess that comes down to fundamentally mindset, you know, in terms of an event viewed by two people can be the same event, but two very different viewpoints of that. Um, and all of these inputs that we have, inputs of experience, inputs of listening to other people, of reading, uh, help us to reimagine, to rethink. But it's hard when it's so ingrained, when it's ingrained in culture that's not just a team or company culture, but might be a country's culture or a societal or an industry-led culture that bucking this trend. And you mentioned early on, you know, when we see so many people going, you know, turning right great leaders turn left yeah. you know, and the opportunity to um, maybe even think about there isn't just a left and right but there's so many different directions and all of them can lead to joy and failure so therefore just take some steps you know yeah, just one of, one of my metaphors i use all the time is from a leadership perspective we look through a telescope or binoculars out into the mm -hmm. future but if we do that we're not looking down into the details. So sometimes we need to take out the telescope or the magnifying glass and look down. So sometimes we're looking far and wide, other times down and deep. But like you just remind me, sometimes we, it's good to look at the world through a kaleidoscope, right? See all the colors, see all the colors of the rainbow and see things from a new prism or, or new perspective. So we need to, again, that's a metaphor I often use from a, from a visual thinking perspective. It's like the old, just putting on the same old lenses I wore when I was 12, is not going to help me see more clearly, right? So we yeah. need to see things. And your your reflective yellow glasses are a whole other way of seeing seeing the world, right? No, one of the concepts I was talking about, my rainbow colored eye on the cover of my book represents the fact that just as no one in the world has this color eye, no one in the world sees the world through the same lens that you do, right? And yeah. we need to remember that. Is that um, Ben Hardy, you mentioned, you know, somebody we, we both know, where he talks about the selective attention, you know, our eyes only see and our ears only hear what our brain's looking for, uh, was a, you know, uh, surmising of that by again, Dan. And this, you know, view that how can we shift our perspective? And I, I'm going to change a little bit of direction here because there's a couple of, couple of things that have triggered in my mind. One is I just wanted to share with you. I absolutely love TV and films myself. I really, uh, it's a place I go to learn, to be inspired. But I'm abstaining for the whole of August with my wife. We decided no TV for August. Uh, so we're going to get, 
you know, out more, do other things. So I'm on day five of that oh, and still going okay. But one of the last things I watched was How to Change Your Mind, the series on Netflix. And the first one was all about LSD. The second one is all about um, magic mushrooms and psychedelic. And when you mentioned about seeing the world through a kaleidoscope and what we might open up, uh, I, I've grown up in a society and culture where both my parents were teachers. I never smoked. I've, you know, never had a pint of beer in my life or wine. You know, I had a few bits of alcohol in college, but then I haven't drunk since. So I'm a teetotal, uh, haven't experienced those things. And I find myself now, Todd, being curious about some of these things that I've thought uh, from society, ah, 60s and 70s, these things are, you know, where you go to space out or they're not right or the, the trips to thinking, how might that unlock some creativity? And I'm fascinated mm. by it. And I'm finding this resurgence of something that was perhaps once viewed in one way is now maybe being a reawakening. Has that come across your world uh, at all of that kind of uh, unlocking of creativity of seeing the world with different tools than maybe yeah, the traditional I, tools. My friend Brian Mathamore, who's an ideation and innovation specialist, always talks about stimuli. And it could be mental stimuli. It could be, so some of the things that you're talking about are like you know, pharmaceutical stimuli, right? Um, or you know, just flipping TV channels or going out into nature. I once did a workshop up in a, a mountain resort in Lake George. And um, I, had, I gave everyone a big, a big index card and colored markers, and they had to go out into nature and just sketch anything from nature that was a metaphor from lead, for, about leadership. And we came back, and everyone came back with a different picture because they saw things from, just from their lens, like what drew them and use of color and everything else. I'm similar to you. I had ne I've never been drunk. I've never smoked pot. I've never had a puff of a cigarette. I just started drinking wine when I turned 40, just as a social thing. So, um, so yeah, I can't even relate to... Though I am curious about like, you know, the impacts of some of those things. So I think we're alike in, in that way. But I think we can get a stimuli. Like I have a physical object around me. This I keep on my desk to remind me to always think globally. I live in New York and it's very easy to have just a New York perspective on everything. This reminds me to think, think globally and see things from multiple perspectives. I use a lot of baseball analogies. But I remember if I'm talking to someone from the UK, I may use soccer or someone from India may use cricket or someone from Australia may use rugby, right? So you want to speak the language of your audience or your listener. Um, I don't know if you guys have, do you guys have Curious George over there? We uh, do. The yeah, yeah. So I, in George, fact, I have the album as well. Okay, yeah. okay. So having this on my desk always reminds me to be curious, ask why, dig deeper. So I always keep Gumby, I don't know if you have Gumby here, it's a cartoon from the 60s, reminds me to be flexible and bend over backwards to serve my clients. So I always, no, there's no, I remind my coaching clients, there's no magic wand. If you need to want to improve, you need to do the work. Um, there's no crystal ball. If you want to know the future, you need to create it. I could go on for hours. I just have to take a pause, Todd, for, for the people who are listening to this. <laughs> we have just experienced, and I can see the influence now of the, of the TV industry, pop culture, yes. of the pop culture, of each of these things that Todd just described, grabbed and showed and that visual clue of connection of being able to learn to have an event to have this stimulus in this multi-century world that we live if you're just listening to the audio you missed out on a, a real Hopefully adventure. people will come and watch the video version yeah and the last one if your mind is closed and said this doesn't apply to me 
you're limited. But if you expand your mind, it creates all this space for possibilities and new ways of thinking. So uh, I'll leave it with that. I could go on for hours, but I'll stop there. And these, you know, it might create a smile. It might create a reference for somebody, but there is some really significant meaning uh, and lessons that we can take from a lot of these things, whether like, you know, you, I like thinking in analogies and metaphors and communicating in that way. It's how I um, learn and it's how I then teach, you know, and the, we often perpetuate our same kind of things of what resonates with us. When you mentioned about your book, you wrote it in a way that you like to read books. Exactly. So the challenge then is how in this hyper contextualization requirement that we can also be hyper personalized and we can meet people where they need to be met in order to realize what their own reality is. So as you mentioned, the state and situation influenced what somebody would sketch mm-hmm. uh, when, they, when they go out. And if we're all given a similar challenge, we'll approach it in many, many different ways. That's the beauty of things. But a lot of organizations have tried to create consistency, tried to create continuity of experience, of flavor, of delivery. And yet by nature as humans, we're so divergent. Uh, And I think this opportunity is now really coming out of the divergency of humans Mm -hmm. in what we want to redefine as even being work. Uh, and the disassociation of all oh, work is drudgery to work is now maybe play yeah. um, and a connection to purpose. So in terms of, you know, this world that we all now know is shifting, we're in an exponential accelerated world. As a teacher, as an educator working in universities, what is changing and shifting in the way in which universities are preparing the next wave of people to take advantage of these things? What, what are, what's shifting, what's changing in, in those areas? Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for all uh, universities or, or um, programs, but in addition to teaching at NYU, one of my roles is to do faculty education. So I train other faculty members in visual thinking and in experiential learning. So I, all of these techniques, like the use of props, like the use of visuals, if, you're, if I'm observing a professor uh, true story, one, one of the professors, so I, I basically sit in on the class, I debrief, I help them figure out how do I turn a lecture into an activity, right? One professor got up and said, the first half hour is going to be really boring, but it gets more interesting later. Can you imagine going to a Broadway show where they say the first few songs really suck, but it gets better after intermission. It's like, that does not fly, right? I said to him, why is it boring? And he said, I said, is it boring to you? He said, no, it's fascinating. I said, why is it fascinating? And he got so animated telling me the story. I'm like, hit the pause button. I wish I recorded that because that's what you need to do in your class. If you're you're saying to your students, this is boring, why should they even pay attention to you? But the passion you just displayed here I get, you got me engaged. I'm not even interested in your subject matter. So he was like that light bulb went off and him like, yeah, I never thought about it that way before, right? So that, you know, putting up PowerPoint slides and they're just one bullet point after another and just reading them line by line is just deadly. And yet people are still doing it, right? If I say to people, would you have wanted to sit through your presentation? They say, no, it's like, then why are you? PowerPoint was not invented to be a torture device, right? So if you could figure out a way to be creative, use imagery, 
make it engaging, interactive. Gamification is big, right? I love that you said play. My friend design, uh, Aisha Bursell, who wrote this book over my shoulder, Design the Life You Live. She was an award-winning furniture and product designer who now applies her design thinking principles to designing a life that you want to live, or designing a future. So if you think about just because business is serious, it doesn't mean it can't be playful and fun, right? So if you have a sense of passion and purpose, if you bring creativity and innovation to what you do, you're going to be more engaged. So like why are engagement scores still like 30% after when they've been doing the same surveys all these years? No, nothing's changed. So we need to engage the person. Um, and uh, so that's just, that's my soapbox. But I think if we make work fun, then people are going to put their heart and soul into what they're doing. And we need to treat people as people, not as cogs in a machine. Because, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I, I think engagement is just kind of even just the first thing at the door. You know, we should be we should be aiming for more than that. We should be aiming for thriving. We should be mm. aiming for where we are, you know, stimulated in all senses, um, not just ah, I, I'm engaged. And maybe that is ultimate engagement. You know, that you get to this sense of of, of thriving. Now, it, it's interesting because I, in my book, I'm talking this challenge around finding moments of play. Often people. And I've been guilty of it in the past. You know, I ran lots and lots of uh, workshops around innovation, around trying to get moonshot innovation, you know, the horizon three, the stuff at the at the edge, and trying to create an environment that fosters that. You know, and we often talk about psychological safety. We talk about the way in which actually it's safe to have ideas in here. And maybe that isn't going far enough because I've been thinking about this reality of, if we can play when plays allowed, how good is that? If we can play when it's not allowed, it comes back to my thought around care. Can we care when it's inconvenient? Can we be like the monkey king? Can we be playful even in a life and death situation? Mm -hmm. um, and often, no, it becomes serious in proportion to the level of risk or how, you know, life and death it is. What if we flip that and reversed it, Todd? What if when we're in the worst situation of everything's gone to uh, insert whatever word you want, can we still be playful then? Do you think that would be an advantage or do you think that's just maybe taking it a bit too far? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think everything's proportionate so there's no one answer. But yeah, if, even in times of stress, even if you, if you incorporate some playfulness, some fun, it unlocks ideation, unlocks creativity. Um, I was once brought in to facilitate an innovation, a one day innovation session. And I started out with, it was going from like nine to five. I started with a, a warm up just to help people connect and bond and create that psychological safety and create this environment where innovation would flow. The CEO at about 45 minutes into my icebreaker said, all right, we've been here for 45 minutes. We haven't come up with new, one new business idea yet. You know, and the clock is ticking and we only have seven hours left. And I was like, that is not the best environment in which to come up with a new, new product and service ideas. It's like, you need to, allow things to flow and to unfold and to um one of my mantras is that team bonding needs to come before team building and you need to connect to each other if you want to work better with each other so i take people through a process that helps to to foster that environment that culture and climate of psychological safety and to unlock the box of creativity but this is someone who's like so tunnel vision he's like ideas ideas we're still looking at a blank piece of paper so we need to realize, give ourselves some space to 
ideate and come up with new ideas and let the light bulbs go off because otherwise uh you know you're just going to leave there eight hours later saying we didn't come up with a single new idea so um, that's a great point it, that we need it to... makes me think of a couple of things to one about pressure so that ceo that person must have felt incredible pressure yeah. and thought that the application of that pressure would create a diamond now you need to have the right element in the first place for that pressure and temperature to create that if you in another world put that pressure in then you might have an eruption that's destructive and doesn't create a value of a, of a diamond and so that was one thing that was coming to me and the other one was one of the people in our community uh Haley just ran a session because we run uh, regular sessions for our community to co-elevate so a, a bit like you said about going in and helping your other lecturers and other professors to be better versions of themselves as a community, we foster this co-elevation. You know, I stole it from uh, Keith Ferrazzi and Keith Ferrazzi's book all around co-elevation. And uh, they use improv a lot. So they come from Second City. They use improv a lot in, in work. And the, the theme in Zoom, in this Zoom world, was connection before content. And so very similar to what you were talking about there of, of creating an environment for creativity before creating yeah. is this connection before content. And so when we come in, oh, right, well, I'm a task rabbit. So Todd, what we've got to do, got to do this podcast, right? Got to get it done, right? I need to get really engaged and I've got these kind of things I want to cover and actually just connect. Yeah. And how do we connect so that we can have a jam, we can have that jazz, we can have a conversation that people want to listen to yeah. and that gain value from the uh, difference of the PowerPoint that everyone was bored to, to the ignited passion that if I can ignite some of your passion about what you care about, then others will listen and that will resonate and we'll get this. I, I talked about uh, mass hysteria being a positive influence. What if mass hysteria was used in a way to spread a positive virus mm. of uh, engagement. And uh, so um, as we come to the, the final stages, Todd, the, the visual leadership um, and your model, and not only using these methodologies or frameworks or principles, you've got a great TED talk that starts to introduce that and the book's available in, in lots of different areas and ways. And I'm looking forward to diving into that. Okay. In terms of some practical things that um, an organization could do or a leader could do to maybe um, shortcut to the first stepping stone to the power of visual leadership, what would you say do? Is it pick up a pen and use that and say no words for this meet? What is it that might just get them started there's, to experience? There's so many, like but one, one example building on the one, you, I, I wrote an article for Inc. Magazine. If you just Google, can you draw what your company does? You could find the article. I do an exercise where people have to get up and basically they have five minutes to draw a picture of and explain it then explain it to us what it is that you do so long story short i was doing this with a group of pharmaceutical salespeople. one guy grew a picture drew a picture of a big whale eating goldfish saying this is us and we're eating up the competition but then the vice president said that's not accurate at all because a lot of our competitors are bigger than us it's not that we're a whale but he thought about it he said it's more like our competitors are sharks because they just bite off the business and swim away leaving you bleeding we're more like dolphins. We're smart, we're fun, we're playful, we're cuddly, we're, um, we're almost human in many ways. So they were whale versus goldfish to dolphin versus shark. So the dolphin became their metaphor of how they were gonna treat people, interact with people. So 
just that one conversation, had that not guy not drawn the wrong answer, we wouldn't have gotten to the bet. There's no right answer, but to a better answer, right? So just that one exercise summed up the power of the pen um, to illustrate something and get a conversation flowing so you could see things. And even if it's wrong, there's a philo English philosopher, George Box, who once said that in regard to mental models and frameworks, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And I love that because they're wrong because they don't accurately reflect the reality 100%. But if there's utility there, if it will help us to see things in a new way or to find some solution, then it was useful. Like a map of the London subway or the New York subway is not geographically accurate, and yet it gets you around from point A to point B, right? So think about that, like use color coding, use mapping, mind mapping, storyboarding, post-its, just get ideas out of your head and into, onto some medium that other people could see what you're saying. And then you can have all these great conversations. So in my book, I break it down to use a um, visual imagery and drawing mental models and frameworks like your excellent AQ model, little, little plug there, doing my homework, uh, using metaphors and analogies and using storytelling and humor if and when appropriate. So those are my four buckets. And when used in combination, it's even more powerful. So when people say, all right, this is great, I get visuals, they increase our attention, comprehension, and retention, as I talk about in my TED talk, right? It gets us to pay attention, to understand, and to remember. Now it's like, all right, how I understand it, I get it, I'm bought in. How do I do this? That's the next step. And uh, that's what I focus on is teaching people how to do this in real life. I love it. And I, I think the, if you can hold a pen, you can draw. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and again, just unlearning maybe the identity or, or limiting factors of what you've put onto yourself about what you can or can't do yeah. it's all a level of perspective uh, of, of those things it's uh, a game that we've played on our um weekly happy hours that we have is using the whiteboards in zoom to do pictionary yeah. um, and just draw things and it's yeah. it is great fun and it it sparks conversation and that whole practice of doing that i i really enjoy there was a quote you used in the end of your TED talk, and it's, I, I can never remember who said it, but I use the essence of it many times uh, a week. And it's about seeing things through new eyes. Yeah. And it leads me to my final question that I ask uh, uh, guests around curiosity, Todd. And as we go through life, maintaining this level of um, beautiful curiosity to discover whether it's a brand new thing or the same thing through new eyes. Um, what was the last thing you did for the first time? And what was it? Wow, that's an amazing question. The last thing I did for the first time. Uh, I, I have to say, I'm almost stumped. It's the last, the first, last thing I did for the first time. Um, my wife usually drives. I haven't driven in like two years because of the pandemic and we take subways most of the time in New York. So I haven't driven in a long time. So it was interesting just to get behind the wheel of a car again. It almost felt like the first time. It felt like a new driver. So, um, so that, I, I, that's the first thing that popped into my head. I was almost like, all right, how do I hold my hands? And which is the gas pedal again? So um, it's funny how things that we've done our whole lives, if we haven't done it for a long time, including public speaking, like many of us mm. who've been on Zoom over the last couple of years for the pandemic, I just did my first in-person training recently. And that almost felt like, all right, how do I do this again? It all came back pretty quickly, but yeah, you get rusty if you don't, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. So uh, 
Yeah, I would say a lot of them. I wonder how many skills have atrophied over the last couple of years. Yeah. I play softball on two softball teams in Central Park, and um, I'm, I still did well. But I was like, all right, you know, how do I do this again? So uh, that's a great point is that we can get very rusty if we don't keep our skills up and unlearn and relearn things. Yeah. And, and it's a, a, a thought designed to be arresting, to yeah. be thoughtful, to consider, okay, when, when really was the last time I did something for the first time? Mm. And do I take that literally? Um, or do I take it that could I bring that to everything I do? Can I make it feel like the first time when I hug my wife? Can it feel like the first time I'm hugging her? When I kiss my wife, can I make it feel like it was the first time I kissed her? When I'm, you know, uh, speaking to a member of the team about something. And there's this beauty of uh, firsts and, you know, multiple, because it gives us an opportunity to be okay with not getting it right. Mm-hmm. And to use your ears and your eyes so much more when we're doing something first time, like you said, where do I put my hands on the steering wheel? Yeah. When I, we're just more observant. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, just, it's just noticing, right? It's, just, yeah. it's, it's about noticing. I do mm. a whole exercise in my NYU class around that. In fact, I do a Zoom icebreaker um, where I have people, I say, find some, look around your room, find something in your environment that either makes you laugh or smile or something that you're proud of. And it can't be a picture of your family because that's just boring. So anything else. And people, everyone just gets up and runs around and there's things right in front of you that's like, yeah, there's this award, like, you know, the little Shakespeare head that's sitting on my desk that I haven't even noticed in a long time. And this is the Batman version where you tip the head back so you can get down to the back. So, but sometimes things are right in front of us. I keep this snail shell here to remind me to slow down, not talk so fast. It doesn't work. My wife gave me that to remind me, but uh, but the, the whole point is because I don't notice it anymore because it's so right in front of me. So that yeah. quote you mentioned, the Marcel Proust, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new lands, but in seeing with new eyes. That's a great practice is just to take a few, few minutes out of your day just to notice something or, or even a person and acknowledge something you hadn't paid attention to in a while. Your desk must be like the TARDIS, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> it must be this uh, huge, I'm envisaging a, a big desk with various things that are all accessible to you. And um, I'm going to share one last thing before uh, we say uh, farewell for now. And that is, have you come across the My Intent um, bracelets? No. So I came across it in, I think it was probably 2018 at a Peter Diamandis uh, conference uh, called Abundance at A360. And he had the founder there of this company called My Intent. And he described how we are so driven by time. What is the time? Where do I need to be? Uh, How long have I got? Hey, there's only seven hours left and we haven't even got an idea down on page. And we're constantly looking at the time, whether it's on a watch or on our phones now, we're constantly looking at the time. Especially if you live in a big city like New York, it's like, what time is that train? Or what time, what time is, is it? Or it takes eight minutes it? to get there unless I take an Uber. It's like, yeah, we're constantly doing And this right obsession with time, do we have an obsession with how are we spending that time? Mm-hmm. And so he created these little, um, uh, basically donut uh, type uh, bracelets And you would put your word. It might be a word that could be slow down or it could be something you want to 
bring more of in your life. My wife, it's compassion, you know, something uh, that's there. And mine, I've, I've in fact got two. One is Unite Humanity was the first one I got in 2018. I then fe felt a bit overwhelmed by it, Todd. At the beginning, it was inspiring. Then it became a, oof, maybe that's a little bit big. And uh, then later I said to myself, well, why can't I have two? Yeah. And so my second one is Co-Elevate. And that um, really was an interesting one. So they that hasn't come off my wrist wow. since 2018. Wow. And this one probably 2019. And it's just that way of um, thinking about how do I want to show up? What are the things that are for me in the, in the world? And so seeing with new eyes, seeing these experiences to always think, is what I'm doing helping humanity unite? Uh, is what I'm doing helping people to co-elevate? And for me, that's what excites me. That's what motivates me to come in and show up and give it my best shot each day. Uh, so I want to say a true thank you for not only taking the time in this session, but in before, uh, in your prep, in your work, and taking this with real intent to show up as value. I've learned loads, and I'm sure many of our listeners have too. If people want to get in touch with you, Todd, what's the best way? Yeah, the best way is to go to my website, toddchurches.com, and uh, just uh, sign up for my newsletter and uh, check me out. And also connect with me on LinkedIn. Just say you saw me on Ross's show, and uh, uh, we'll continue the conversation on LinkedIn. I live on LinkedIn, so I'm always there, and uh, I love engaging with people. So uh, those are the two best ways. Magic. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Rob. Do you have the level of adaptability to survive and thrive the rapid changes ahead? Has your resilience got more comeback than a yo-yo? Do you have the ability to unlearn in order to reskill, upskill and break through? Find out today and uncover your adaptability profile and score, your AQ. Visit aqai.io to gain your personalized report across 15 scientifically validated dimensions of adaptability. For a limited time, enter code PODCAST65 for a complimentary AQME assessment. AQAI, transforming the way people, teams and organisations navigate change. Thank you for listening to this episode of Decoding AQ. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast directory and we'd love to hear your feedback. Please do leave a review and be sure to tune in next time for more insights from our amazing guests.